Well, welcome back to the Comic Book Historians Podcast. I'm Alex Grant. Today with Jose Villarubia, an Eisner-nominated professor of art at various colleges, universities, and museums, whose work we've seen adorn comics, illustrations of Bill Sienkiewicz, Paul Pope, Jay Lee, writings of Alan Moore, and others. Now with a recent project that he's doing with the art of Richard Corbin for Dark Horse. Jose was kind enough to also color Andrea Bulgarelli's pencils and inks on our Frank Thorne zine that we did a couple years ago, which was very nice. Uh, Jose, thanks for coming on the podcast my pleasure you're remastering richard corbin's den for dark horse from what i've seen it looks outstanding and beautiful and i love corbin's art and the illustrations and it sounds like you guys had a friendship before we get started on your biography tell us what brought on that it sounds like a passion project it is i've always loved corbin since i was like 13 years old and uh, it was one of my, the highlights of my career when I finally got to work with him and do a little bit of coloring for him when he started to do commercial work and had other people color his work. I wanted to make sure to preserve the early material that he did in the 60s, 70s, up to the early 80s, which is how I fell in love with his work. And because he used very complex printing techniques and he was not reproduced very well in many cases the first time around, I was very concerned of the quality of the reprints that would happen. So I, uh, about 10 years ago, I, I was working for Dark Horse and my editor was the editor of the Warren titles. And I asked him as a favor if I could restore the volume they did of his Warren stories creepy and eerie presents Corbin, which I did when Corbin helped me out. He sent me scans of original art and was very helpful. I did a handful of stories that he did for Vampirella as well. And then time went by and eventually after he passed away, it was clear that his classic titles had to be brought back to print. So, um, Working with his widow and his daughter, we figure out a way to do it. And starting with then, I knew for a fact that uh, he had kept all the originals. Having the original sources, meaning the original gray tone painted art, makes it much more feasible than uh, to restore the work than it would be working from printed sources, which is something I had to do in some of the creepy and eerie stories. And it sounds like it's a way to also kind of resolve the fact that he did pass away and to have some sort of dedication to him and his family. It sounds like a, an opportunity for that as well. Is that correct? Absolutely. It's a tribute to his work. Um, and I think it's a way to try. It's my attempt to be able to help uh, facilitate keeping his work in print for posterity in under the best possible conditions a lot of subtle corrections but also keeping the vibrancy and strength that it had to begin with and uh, i had the full cooperation and support of uh, donna his widow and beth his daughter who's also a colorist and worked with her dad a lot it's been thrilling because they've been giving me feedback of how richard would have liked to see the work, not necessarily exactly how it was printed sometimes, but uh, a little bit differently. So that was, that's been really great. 
Yeah. Maintaining true to the intention. I think that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, so now this is the comic book historians podcast, of course, and uh, we we have a biographical approach to uh, a lot of our interviews. So you were born in 1961 in Madrid, Spain. Mm -hmm. um, you came to the USA in 1980, from what I understand. So you were you had already kind of developed, you know, into a young adult by the time you came to the United States. So did you did you grow up on comics as a kid or? Yes, I um as I said many times, my generation in Spain, everybody grew up on comics. But there's there were children's comics that everybody read, all the children. It was kind of considered an extension of children's books, but much more affordable. So everybody knew the same children's characters. And uh, they were funny stories. In addition to that, there were French and Belgian comics that were very popular, like Tintin and Asterix and Looky Look, which all the kids, we all read them. Uh, they, they were hardcovers and they were like graphic novels. Yeah, albums, right? Yeah. Albums, yes. So Alix and all that stuff. Marvel and DC was also published in Spain. DC, not so much. It was Mexican imports, but they were easily sold. Marvel, they were reprinted in black and white. And I remember around 11 or 12, I started reading those as well. Soon after, I discovered Metal Ouglant and the work of Moebius and the work of Corbin, and uh, the work of Spanish artists, Italian artists like Dino Battaglia, Sergio Topi, uh, Ugo Prat, um, Guido Crepax. Um, that was all in my early teens. And that's in the 70s, huh? the set, like the Spanish illustrators that were kind of coming out with a lot of that Warren stuff. Is that some of that stuff you're looking at? I was looking at that, but that wasn't my favorite. <laughs> I read them, but my favorite of the Warren books definitely was American artists like Corbin and Bernie Wrightson. I liked Maroto of the Spanish artists. Uh, I liked him a lot. And I knew him already from Spain, from this magazine called Trinca, for the magazine called Dracula, which was a tabloid uh, magazine. I also like Enric Cio. I like, I mean, there were some really amazing Spanish right. artists, but it wasn't, I didn't like them so much for their work for war and i like them for more european projects so then did you kind of seek them out since they were since they were local then or since some of them were local did you kind of try to find them or were they just around it didn't even occur to me that they could be approached there was no conventions or fandom to speak of so there was no there were no signings there was no nothing the only thing that was found was a club that was mostly professionals. They were all much older than me. They would have sporadic gatherings. And this was a very bad time in Spain. It was the ending of the Franco dictatorship. Right. So there was a lot of turmoil, a lot of violence, and it was bad. I went to some meetings of this association, and through them, I met some professional artists like Ispiti and, and others and older fans. And I got introduced to the work of the Spanish fanzines at the time, and I did some work for the fanzines in my late teens before I started college, and then I moved to America. So I left that scene. But the only signing I ever went to in the 70s in Spain was when Moebius came to the book fair in Madrid, and I was already an absolute fanatic. So I did go to have my book signed. I came, I remember it was a huge pile of Moebius books, mostly in French, and he signed and sketched every one of them. And oh, wow. He gave me a copy of The Eyes of the Cat, which he had just done with Jodorowsky, which was not for sale, with a really nice sketch. 
And he was there for three days and I was there for three days. I would just go and hang out. He had no line, hardly anyone talked to him. And I was just, uh, I brought my brothers. We just were kind of hanging out and he didn't kick me out. He was very polite. Now, what, what did your parents do? Were they artists at all? Yes, uh, to an extent. My father uh, had an advertising agency. Oh. And uh, his best friend was his partner in the agency, and he was a really talented painter named Ezekiel, spelled Ezekiel. And uh, Ezekiel was very, he was an illustrator, but he was also a fine artist, and he was very interested in comics. He started a, for Trinca, he started a beautiful, large format uh, painted comic adaptation of the Divine Comedy. Mm. Well, well. And which would have been amazing, but then come uh, Trinka folded, and so the project was never published. He thought it was funny that I read uh, American comics. Uh, he thought they were silly, uh, but he liked uh, Dino Battaglia. He liked Victor de la Fuente and other people. And then my mother was uh, she studied she worked in a ceramic studio when she was uh, young and. She was an amateur painter, and then she became a professional photographer. And professional photography, first for my father's agency, and then for her own fine art, uh, and commission works on fashion photography and so forth. So, yeah, she's completely into art. Yeah, the visual and the visual expression, the communication. What were your favorite films growing up? As far as what, which ones had like the most visual impact on you as a teenager trying to find your way artistically? Kubrick's, for sure. 2001, Berlinden. I love that movie. I do to this day. In terms of movies, I was trying to catch up with a lot of the classics. I was trying, it wasn't easy. There were no videos even. Uh, so you had to go to little theaters that showed cycles. And so um, I tried to catch up all the classics growing up. But of the newer ones that were coming on at the time, it, definitely Kubrick was my favorite, especially visually, but in general. And and then I had like cult classic favorites, like Phantom of the Paradise, which my brothers and I watched. I remember counting them. We went to the theater 17 times. We really loved that movie, uh, Brian De Palma, with a poster by Neil Adams and Richard Corbin. I have that framed. Later on, I liked a lot of filmmakers. I still do. I was not a big Star Wars fan. I was not a big Star Trek fan. I, it just, everything seems so silly because I had really loved 2001 and it just feel like from speculative science fiction going down to like soap opera with princes and princesses and kimonos and stuff. Just this wasn't for me. I was too old. <laughs> I was 23, but I felt too old. Yeah. Well, maybe your tastes were, were um, so sophisticated by that point. Um, did you gain an appreciation for color uh, at a young age? And I don't think that I ever thought about color other than as an integral part of art. So when I started to like certain artists, then I started to really pay attention to how they use color. And that was also in my early teens. I got the French reprint of it, but it was an American book about uh, Arthur Rackham and Edmond Dulac, the art of Frank Fuzetta. Those really played a big role for me artistically and in terms of the aesthetics, including the art. My brothers and I, we were fanatics of uh, Alphonse Mucha, some of his posters hanging in our wall, and his palette was exquisite. I loved the photography work of David Hamilton at the time. 
and the way that he used color. I also bought his books and I was very, very impressed with his aesthetics. He led to other photographers like Sarah Moon, whose work I always loved for the color as well. My visual awakening in terms of like finding inspiration in all different kinds of art, color was one of the elements that was fundamental for some of them, but I never thought about it as a separate concept. I had no idea. I was learning to paint and draw and paint as well. You know, that's another thing. When I was 12 years old, my art teacher in school told my parents I should start preparing for the art academy. So I started taking traditional art courses after school. First thing I did was a copy of an Impressionist painting by Joaquin Sorolla. Sorolla was all about color, and I could only use primaries. And I did uh, watercolors, charcoal drawings, so on and so forth. So I knew that knowledge of color and color theory, I already knew a lot because my mother had encyclopedias at home about how to learn different artistic disciplines. And as a young teen, I already read them and done a lot of the exercises. So I knew color theory and a new composition and a new perspective. We had to do linear perspective in school anyway. So Now, uh, you mentioned the Marvel, the stuff was black and white then. What were you looking at like the Kirby Ditko kind of stuff? What, what, what was your like favorite Marvel at the time? I like the Kirby stories. I didn't like Ditko. I, I didn't like Kirby's art. I liked the stories. I liked that the characters cross over from one series to the other. That was very exciting when I was 11 or 12. But I didn't start really appreciating the art until I discovered Neil Adams. Neil Adams had a huge impact on me because his work was completely different and so much better drawn than anything I had ever seen in American comics. Because the Spanish reprints had no credits, my brothers and I would make up nicknames for the artists. Neil Adams' uh, nickname for us was The Futurist. Oh, that's great. El Futurista. Because whenever he's like, oh, look, do you see this thing by the futurist? Because what everything he drew looked like from the future compared with Kirby or any of those or Ditko. I also really loved John Buscema when he took over the Kirby series, like Fantastic Four and Avengers. And I was like, this art is beautiful. I like Gene Collin a lot. And then I discovered the studio, Wrightson, Barry Windsor Smith, Jeff Jones, Michael Luda. You were drawn toward that stylized realism sensibility versus the, the cartoon, it sounds like. As a teenager, I like cartoons that were cartoony. Like, I love uh, Kino, who did comic strips like Mafalda. He was like, everybody loved him, but I really loved him. And I loved his single illustration gags. And he was totally cartoony. We all like a bunch of Spanish people that did cartoon stuff, like Forges and, uh, and other humorists. I like the energy in a lot of the more stylized American artists, but I was not attracted to the art. Now I appreciate them in a different way. The teen, I thought Ditko's characters were so ugly that I just couldn't stomach them. Now I think he's genius. But as a teen, when Romita started to draw those characters, all of a sudden everybody was beautiful and glamorous. Yeah. And the soap opera part really worked because I could never understand Peter having a crush on like the way those girls were drawn and stuff. It just didn't work for me. <laughs> I gotcha. <laughs> now, uh, you came to the USA in 1980. I read in one interview you said to just kind of uh, get away from your background. That, that's what I had seen as an answer for why you did that. 
Um, what did what did you feel you were getting away from, uh, if I may ask, or or what was the overall theme of your journey to the U.S.? There are many things that contributed to that. Spain was in a state of turmoil after the death of Franco, and I got accepted, which was very difficult, to the most prestigious place to study art, which was the Academy of San Fernando in part of the University of Madrid. It had just been incorporated into the university system. It was an art school that had become part of the university system. They added certain classes. It was a mess. Half of the semester, the students were on strike. Half of the semester, the teachers were on strike. Mm. I remember my painting class had 80 students in it. I never met my teacher. I painted and I got a grade. Mm. That's it. So it was a waste of my time. So... I thought coming to the States would be an opportunity to actually, I already had a lot of training, so I was ready for more training, not just, and I had been to the States and I had friends in the States, but more importantly, I wanted to have my own identity, uh, separate from where I came from and my family and so forth. I mean, I was working with a little bit with my father as a teenager. If I had stayed in Spain, I would have continued working for him and I would have been his son. We have the same name. I didn't want that. Also, because I'm gay. I didn't really want to stay in Spain because Spain had terribly homophobic laws at the time. Mm. And there was not a path forward in terms of that in Spain. Um, That came much later. So even though things were very difficult here, they were not as difficult as they were back there. Mm, I see what you're saying. So even the the Reagan's America was actually a lesser um, a lesser evil in a way. You're saying, well, Reagan's America became a nightmare. But when I came, that was the year Reagan was elected, so it was still Carter's America. I see. And Carter's America was a much better place. Reagan America became very very difficult, especially because of AIDS and because of like what came afterwards. So things went downhill real fast. Once I was here studying. I see. Okay. So it was a, a disappointment. Yeah. There were a lot of great things happening here. And, you know, certainly my education was great. My career really took off and, you know, um, everything was going great. But uh, being gay in the 80s was absolutely awful. It was just absolutely terrible. What kind of work did you do in the 1980s? Because officially got into comics in the 90s so what was what were you doing in the 80s for the first part i was still in school and i got my bachelor's in um in fine arts and then i studied a master's degree in um painting in fine art painting so i started off as as a painter and i would do gallery work and i would do uh portrait commissions Uh. and i did it for a couple years but i got bored with it and instead i decided i wanted to be a fine art photographer so i was very good friends with a local photographer who's brilliant named stephen john phillips and uh, i asked him for a lot of advice and uh and i started doing fine art photography exhibiting it here and then later in new york in soho where were you living at this time Baltimore. I was living in the same place I'm talking to you from. Oh, that's great. Uh-huh. And uh, so I started to show photography in New York. And that's what I did uh, towards the end of the 90s. It lasted about 10 years and there was a bit, until there was a big collapse in the photography world. And, and I had to 
reinvent myself in the 90s. Is the internet in any way in part responsible or digital cameras in part responsible for the collapse of photography? I mean, now you could argue that, but back then there wasn't, that wasn't the case. What happened was um, the 80s had been spend, 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 live beyond your means, speculate, speculate, speculate. It happened in comics, you know, like that stupid speculation about death of Superman and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. So people were spending more money that they had in all kinds of uh, goods, including art. So there was a boom in collecting, um, but people were basically living beyond their means. And when the when things came down, things like fine art galleries really, really suffered. And um, that's what's happened with everything that was shown in galleries, including photography. Photography at that point wasn't really done digitally. Um, I mean, I did a little bit of Photoshop back then, but for the most part, it was still done with film and uh, printed uh, on paper and so forth. And it was those editions that were valuable. So digital photography and everything that came from that and the facility to share images in the internet, that came much later. So yeah, it's just like a lot of things in the 80s where people just spent money till they didn't have any more to spend and then it just kind of falls down. How did you get into then coloring comics? Um, how did that start? And I see that it seems to be tied in with a lot of uh, Jay Lee's artwork or pencils. How did all that happen? How did you get into comics? You know, I had already published a little bit some penciling work that I did for Legion of Superheroes. I was offered a story and I said no at that time. Uh, later on, because I was in the fine art world, I was part of the advisory board of directors of a really nice art center here in Baltimore. They asked me to curate a show of local comics artists. So I invited Bernie Wrightson and oh. Mark Hempel and Mark Wheatley and uh, Ron Wilson and, um, and several other people. And then somebody in the comic book store told me you should asked this guy, Jay Lee, to do it. And I didn't know who Jay was. He was very young. But he was like the hot new thing in Namor at the time. And then we became really good friends. So then when he left Marvel and joined Image, it was when coloring was going through a change and digital coloring was becoming a thing. Basically, he was not happy with the kind of digital coloring that he was seeing. And since he knew that... I could paint because I was a painter, and he knew that I loved Wilson Kevich, uh, Kent Williams, painted art. He asked me if I would do painted colors on his comics, and I said yes. So I learned Photoshop, and then we did Hellshock together. And then when he went to Marvel, he took me along with him. When he went to DC, he took me along with him. He tried to take me along to Dark Horse, but didn't happen first, but then eventually it did. They had their own colorist at that Hiding house colorist, yeah. How coloring was changing to digital. Was that basically Photoshop that was doing a lot of the coloring at that time? In the comics world, there was they were in transition. The first comics that were colored digitally, they were colored with some PC paint program, which I don't know, which gave like I would say more crude graphics. It was a thing for five minutes. I learned Photoshop. And Photoshop then wasn't what Photoshop is now, you know, 30 years later, but it had a lot of same intuitive features. 
So the way I colored for the first few years, I was doing painted colors on paper, and then I was tweaking them in Photoshop. So it wasn't all Photoshop. So it's a very laborious process. That's how I color, you know, Fantastic Four, one, two, three, four, Captain America. Yeah, that sounds like it was a very creative kind of finding the right balance. And because you had a thing for illustration and the textures of the paint and fine arts world, that was your niche as a colorist. You brought that sensibility to it that then a lot of pencilers appreciated on their work is how I'm understanding this. That's correct. And with the years, I diversified. I started doing more different kinds of coloring, also because I like to try new things. For example, when Paul Pope asked me to work with him, I knew that his colors were going to be very flat because of the way he draws. Yeah. When Ryan Suk asked me to color him, he asked me for flat, and I gave him flat. He couldn't believe it because he told me nobody had done that when he asked for it. It's like... Depending on the art and depending on the taste of the artist and the taste of the editor, you work in different ways. And I noticed like on the credits, especially in like the mid 90s that of the stuff you were in. Sometimes it wouldn't just say colorist, it would say like computer coloring. And it sounds like that's what they meant was that you were basically doing a hand coloring, but then doing a Photoshop kind of thing on those credits. Like I look at credits and it's interesting that they were writing it as computer coloring a lot of your stuff um what was that the main approach to coloring in comics basically from the mid 90s and on i mean is that basically how most colorists approach comic books around that time it just kind of went digital it took a long time yeah for many many years um for example in dc you had to do color guides and give it to a studio and they would like i just found like Mark Wheatley and Mark Hempel did the story for Flinch, beautiful story, and they wanted me to color it with painted colors. And all I could do, because they would not do it other ways, I had to paint the pages, give them to all the optics, and all the optics would mimic what I did in Photoshop instead of just scanning it. Oh, wow. And it was like, I had already done painted colors for jay for years when that happened but at dc they were like "Uh uh-uh this has to be copied by you know a technician it's like okay so it took a long time um and i would say like 10 years to make the transition so colorists could do just whatever they thought that was best without having color guides done first amazing sounds like uh, each company had their own different way of doing this Oh, absolutely. This is the thing that technically uh, with Image, it was kind of like a free-for-all because they were creator-owned books and like the creators would do whatever they thought was best in every single sense. Uh, So there was no supervision of the writing or the art or the coloring or nothing, just whatever the artists wanted. But Marvel and DC and Dark Horse, they had their systems in place and innovation had no space. They They saw themselves as companies producing a professional product that was marketable why mess with something that works so they had no interest in growing or because growing and experimenting means risking failure right and cost i guess not so much cost because for example having an intermediary between my color guides and the finished pages that adds cost to the work oh yeah as opposed to just me doing it it wasn't so much cost as it was this is the way we do it. 
this is the way we've always done it, even if you hadn't been, it had been just a few years. For example, I would insist on getting the pages scanned in grayscale as opposed to bitmap, because so much line art was dropped in bitmap, and that was like struggle. Like mm. the editors had to argue with production for that to happen. So, but I understand them. They don't get paid to try new thing because if it printed bad and it could, then they would be in trouble. Mm -hmm. And printing was, well, I mean, I had to do my own trapping for years and it was a mess. It was complicated. It was very difficult. Um, but whatever, you know? I mean, I learned to color in a way that I always tell my students I kind of average the pages. So I color in a way that if it prints too dark, it still look good. If it prints too light, it still look good. So you just sort of like with the years and doing thousands and thousands and thousands of pages, your eye just can see that, yeah, that dark blue is going to print terrible. Yeah, yeah, that's you know, Yeah, sure. Yeah, the experience and... Uh... And then you see the results anyway. Do do you buy your own stuff? Like, let's say you've colored stuff. Do you buy it just to see what it ended up looking like? No, I get comps. You get the comps, yeah. And then do you kind of study the results, and then that informs you on how you approach it next time? No, I haven't done that in years. I, I they, they printed. I don't remember being surprised by the printing in fifteen years or twenty years. I mean, no, there's no need for that. You know, normally it looks just like what it did uh, on the screen. Yeah, yeah. Five to ten percent changes, but those are part for the course. That was one of the things I remember when I first came upon that concept. I was like reading up on Barry Windsor Smith, and he'd be frustrated that he put all this detail in his in his uh, Conan, and then when he'd see the the print production, he would be like so frustrated. And now it's not just coloring, right? You've also done this kind of uh, computer photography, Humetti kind of stuff. Yeah. But you did a cover art for Neil Gaiman's Wheel of Worlds. Oh my goodness, yes. First, how'd you get onto that project? And it sounds like you were taking photos and then doing manipulation in Photoshop to create a cover. Is that, how, how did that work? That was like one of my first jobs. I think the first time I actually colored something fully was for Xander of the Lost Universe with Jay. And the files were so big that I had to go to printing center to overlap the line art into the painted art. I just couldn't find a computer that could handle that, not even in my school, because the size of the files so i did a few xander covers that's a gene roddenberry thing yeah i did the first one was color guides and the ridiculous method i told you and the second one i said jay just let me do it and then mm. he did and then because i had been doing fine art photography and i was i hadn't i had learned to do photoshop and i was doing a little bit of fine art photoshop or manipulated photography of figures and so forth um the editor asked me if I would do the cover for for the wheels Wheel of Worlds and the Wheel of Worlds. I did a sketch; it was approved. I did the photo shoots; it was approved. Um, put together and sent it to them, and that was that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just very striking and kind of unique looking cover, especially for a comic books. So I, I enjoyed looking at. Uh, well, in researching this, it was a lot of fun stumbling onto things like that. You colored Jay Lee on Uncanny X-Men. It was like a variant cover, I think. It was a Dynamic Forces cover, uh, issue number 360, 1998. So when you're doing this, are you doing this all from Baltimore, like from internet, or are you in New York? 
All in Baltimore. And that was under editor Bob Harris at Marvel. Did you have any interactions with the editors or was this all like through Jay communicating with you? Like how how that all work? Anything with Jay has always been because Jay demanded that I work with him. Mm-hmm. So I would really have no editorial communications. I was just kind of like, in a way, like an assistant of Jay's. Yeah, so it was always through Jay, basically. He was the intermediary in all these things. The stuff with Jay, yes. Yeah, because you did a lot of cool things there. You colored Jay on the Spider-Man uh, Chapter 1 Dynamic Forces cover under editor Ralph Macchio. So just kind of a cool time. When you look at your covers, you know, versus the other variants, yours st- stands out. It just feels like the art and the coloring, they just have something unique that you're looking at. And the other ones look a little more standard, I think, for the time. Thank you. The photo art that you mentioned, you also worked in 1999 on Veils and Flinch. Yeah. Yeah, those are the two things that you did. So did you do those in a similar process as the Neil Gaiman cover that you did? Yes, that was my friend Stephen John Phillips that I mentioned before that had been my mentor in fine art photography to an extent. He is the one who encouraged me to take a Photoshop class and we took it together, a summer class. But I learned Photoshop quicker, more efficiently. And so then he talked to Karen Berger about doing a graphic novel about a harem. He had done some covers because photo covers were a thing then. And like people like Dave McKeon had done some photo covers and other people. And so he did all of the covers for a series called Caro's Curo about the lives of the life of Leonardo da Vinci with uh, with another digital artist doing the Photoshop part. So for Veils, that was an idea he had. He had done a series of odalisks uh, for fine art. And he and this writer, Pat McGreal, came up with the concept of doing sort of like a feminist fantasy story about a harem. Stephen and I made a sample page and we presented it and the project was approved. And then it was a challenge to do it, but it was very fun. Basically, we got the script. I did the layouts, which were kind of like pencils. We'll get notes on those. And then from that, uh, Stephen would shoot most of the models and I would incorporate them into backgrounds and combine them sometimes with figures from paintings. We also had my friend Alexei Zolotaryov did some 3D. He was working in a video game company, so he did the screens and he did the bathhouse and several other elements. He also worked on on Promethea later for me. And then all of the cast and all of the costumes, and all, we had zero budget. So everything was favors, friends, borrowing. You know, those things had to be real. Karen showed it to Harlan Ellison, who really liked it. We got a great write-up in Entertainment Weekly. And Stephen went on to do other photographic novels, uh, but not with me. He worked with other digital artists. He did one called I Paparazzi, and then he did one about Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe is very attached to Baltimore, so it was a good subject. I went on to work with Alan Moore on a special chapter of Promethea that he wrote for me. And that I had to do the work by myself getting models, making costumes, wigs. It was hard. Which that really stands out by the, because I read all of Promethean. I remember looking at that going, whoa, this is different. This is great. In Veils, you dedicated your work to Richard Corbin in that, I noticed. Yes. So Corbin is like a real presence, you know, for a long time. I mean, long time. Forever. Yes, yes. This um, is not just a fad for me. Um, Corbin, in addition to everything else, which is too numerous to mention, one of the things that I've been obsessed 
is the two fumetti that he did. He did two stories photographically, and especially the first one, which is called Ogre, which uh, Jan Stranad wrote. It's a mini masterpiece. He actually shot real people. Bruce Jones was the male model. Karen Gilbertson was the female model. His clay figures and sets collaged them, but he would distort the figures photographically, like by tilting the projectors that prints the photograph, tilt it and get distorted photographs and then cut them and paint. I mean, amazing, just absolutely insanely brilliant. And then at the end, he would color it with this manipulating the color layers of the mm. printing separations. Insanely artistic, creative, shocking, beautiful. In addition to everything else, Veils was a new thing at the time. But I felt like without having seen what Corbin did, I would have never pictured doing something that was beautiful and fantastical because photo comics in Europe are like photograph soap operas, telenovelas, we call them in Spain. And they're just very tacky pictures of like, you know, photographs of people making faces. And Corbin took it to another dimension. And then he did another one, Doom's Cult. And then he was going to do the continuation of Ogre, but he put a thing about how there was a catastrophe and he couldn't do it photographically and he just drew it. So that was that. Interesting. You're able to access that otherworldly dimension with digital photo art because of the exposure to Corbin, or at least that's that was a strong part of it, which uh, which uh, which uh, is almost a story of Den with that guy that goes into that other dimension. Um and encountering that fantastic world. So in a way, you're that guy in that, in an artistic way for uh, for Vale. Yeah, you also uh, colored The Century with Jay Lee under Joe Quesada. So it's interesting, you've worked under a lot of these interesting editors. Did you have any interesting interaction with Karen Berger, by the way? Very much so. She's a friend. Karen was my first boss, really, because Vale's was Alicia Quitney, but it was, she was under Karen's supervision. So I knew Karen from the beginning, doing things like the cover for Flinch and stuff like that. That was with Joan Hilty, who then became a friend as well. Karen and I really bonded in Naples. About uh, 14 years ago, I was uh, in my first sabbatical and I went to my first convention in Italy and it was in Naples. And Karen was a guest as well. And Naples is amazing, but it's a very overwhelming place. When you first go, I was overwhelmed. Chaotic and fun. Karen saw me there. She was like, oh, you're here. And we really bonded. And she liked that I could communicate in my terrible Italian. And I would explain to her what was going on half of the time. So we had a great time. We had a blast. And then she told me she wanted me to do some stuff for Vertical. And I said, absolutely. So uh, because of that, I did several things. Porn Sacrificial Shot was Karen's assistant at the time. So that's how I became friends with Hornsack, which whom I work much later in, in Fidel. I know Karen, and Karen has been very kind. And when she left Vertigo, I went with her to her burger books. She gave me coloring for Anthony Bourdain's series, Hungry Ghosts. I had already color under Karen. I had color Anthony Bourdain's Gejiro graphic novel. And I also colored the second one. So he liked what I did. And Paul Pope was doing the covers, and Paul likes what I do. And I got to color some people that I hadn't colored before that were wonderful. So I have enormous respect and admiration for Karen. I can't say enough good things about her professionally, creatively, and personally. 
she's one of my absolute uh, heroes. She's her own legend, you know, with a lot of the work she did. Um, Absolutely. Uh, in comics. Let's talk a bit about Alan Moore, you know, and how you got kind of, um, you know, working with him. You you did color plate illustrations for his, for a couple of his novels, right? Voice of Fire. How did you get involved in that? I discovered him in Swamp Thing, like most American readers. And then I was very, very impressed by his writing. And I started reading everything by him and devouring it. Eventually, I read his novel, Voice of the Fire, which had come out in England in small format with little black and white illustrations, beautiful, a pocketbook. I had this idea that I could do photo illustrations for Voice of the Fire if I could find the right publisher. So I approached a couple publishers that had done books like that, and we just didn't click. So one day I was in San Diego and I was walking by the Top Shelf booth and there was Chris Taros, who I had not met, but I knew had a sterling reputation as one of the nicest people in comics. So I went right up to him, introduced myself. He knew who I was. We were talking about Alan. He was already doing something with Alan. Maybe he had already talk, started talking about uh, finishing Lost Girls. So I told him I wanted to an uh, illustrated hardcover of uh, Boys of the Fire. And he said, funny you mentioned. And he pulled out a yellow notepad from under the desk in his booth. And like right there in this to-do list was publish an American edition of Voice of the Fire. So that's how it happened. I went to Northampton and Alan made a map of Northampton and he marked where everything took place in the story. Oh, cool. Melinda and I, Melinda, his wife, fiance then, we took a taxi and we spent a day going around Northampton, taking lots and lots of film pictures back then. And uh, that was the basis for illustrating Voice of the Fire. Because like you said, you did kind of digital photo art for Promethea. You did some, you did coloring. You also colored uh, what Chris Prouse on Tom Strong as well, another Alan Moore work. And then The Mirror of Love, 2004, that was a uh, part of uh, an anti-homophobia kind of message. So did he have you in mind for that? Or is that something you really wanted to be a part of as well? Um, how did that one come about? This is how I met him. I remember what happened when I first met him and he opened the door. Mm-hmm. He gave me a huge hug and he told me, can I make you a cup of tea? Oh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> Very English. And uh, um, I had talked to him before. And I think the first time I talked to him was because I had this idea to adapt uh the Mirror of Love as a play. Mm, okay. And my friend David Drake did an adaptation and I performed it in a theater festival here in Baltimore. Mm. And then it was filmed and I took a tape and gave it to him and Melinda and they really liked it. Oh, okay. That's interesting. I had no intention of turning it into a book at that point. I just wanted it as a play. Then I proposed illustrating Voice of the Fire. Chris Tyrus agreed. Then I don't know what happened then, but this French friend of mine proposed that I do A Mirror of Love as a book, as a comic. I said, I won't do it as a comic because it was a comic already, which I never saw until after I'd done the play adaptation. But I think it would be a great book. And so I proposed that to Chris. Chris said yes. We proposed it to Alan. Alan said yes. 
I actually got Alan to rewrite some of the parts, which was good. And Alan really likes that book and he's taken it and done readings in like schools and stuff with it. You guys got along quite well and uh, yes. maybe sharing um, certain artistic tastes, maybe a kind of also a mutual European sensibility about some things. And um, sounds like uh, you, you enjoyed his company and he enjoyed yours. And that's really wonderful. Um, Alan is a friendliest, nicest warmest guy you can imagine and you know over the years i uh you know i got close to him uh but also to melinda his wife who came to visit me in paris um several times um and we went together to portugal to amsterdam uh, to, to denmark um into other places uh with melinda not so much with alan because uh, alan doesn't like to travel but we i also know leah well, his daughter, and she's been wonderful always. So I'm friends with the family. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're wonderful people. Yeah. Um, quick question about your interactions with them as far as what you've observed as a friend. And, um, but when I read his stuff, and I've, I, I feel like I've read everything he's done, at least com in comic world, uh, there almost seems to be like a very metaphysical, you know, view of the world and the people and the emotions. And then he describes that in this really unique and an amazing way. And something I always wonder is, is he like, is it, do you feel like there's, he has some sort of psychic or at least some sort of empathic ability with his, with fellow humans and creatures? Uh, do, did you observe anything like that? Or is he just a very good writer? And, you know, uh, I mean, did, did, what's your impression of that? He's brilliant. I mean, he's the most intelligent person I ever met. So he makes connections that are dazzling. They're not just surprising. They're beautiful connections. And also sometimes very complex. He does talk very lightly about mystical experiences, never predicating, never preaching, never, and always with humor, always. Hmm. Like he coaches everything he says with mild self-deprecation and so forth. So he's... Absolutely uh, mesmerizing speaker. If you buy, uh, there is a DVD that is around called The Mindscape of Alan Moore. Yeah. Yeah. And um, if you watch that, that's very close to talking to him, except he's a great listener. Right. And right. Right. he tells you things, but he also wants you to tell him things. And he really listens. Um, and he remembers things and he loves stories. So when you tell him stories, it's like you're doing, like giving him a little present. <laughs> That's great. I was very surprised at first because when he would ask you, well, what's going on with your, what's going on with this and that? And then you start to tell him the story and then he gets very close to you and he opens his eyes very wide. It's like, he doesn't want to miss anything of what you're saying. Right. And then you realize is that that's the highest currency in his world stories amazing and so he doesn't care about anything material he doesn't care about fame fortune riches celebrity uh but he loves stories and he loves people and when he walks around northampton everybody knows him he talks to everybody i mean literally everybody and 
he knows their name, he knows their story, he helps out people as much as possible. Um, he's enormously beloved by his community. And um, it says so much about him, you know, there's a lot that people just don't know about him that mm. is remarkable. He's, he's a really incredible person. Mm. Well, it says a lot about you about these specific things that you notice about and that's really great. It sounds like those are things that you value as well than with you, uh, the way, you, the way you describe it. Um, now, um, kind of back to, back to coloring. And, uh, so just want to r- review a couple of things you did. You did some pretty interesting things. You, uh, did like a colored, uh, Wolverine cover, uh, under editor, Mike Martz, um, Gambit Bishop coloring those covers, colored the cover for Hulk with a uh, penciler, um, J.H. Williams under Tom Brevoort. So in a lot of these, when it wasn't Jay Lee, it was maybe other people, would you have more in contact with the editor or was it more, again, through the penciler? How was that working? Depends on the editor. Mike was the first editor that I worked after working for Nancy Quesada uh, doing Sentry. Yeah. And Mark edited and his... Um, assistant Mike Wright at the time uh they were editing the Sentry crossover and they were very involved and I got a lot of work from them from the editors them in particular after I worked with them once I did Bill Sienkiewicz's Hulk Sentry crossover and the uh, Martek Serra Angel X-Men Sentry crossover Tom uh I worked with him a number of times usually I deal with his assistant so it depends on the situation some editors have their assistants deal with the colorist some editors deal directly with the with the colorist but it's it varies on the situation uh mike marx was wonderful and very hands-off and i worked with him until he left aftershock last year uh i've done a ton of work for him and he's always been um great to work with and always uh listen to like I would tell him, I'd like to work with this artist that you're working with, and he would always make arrangements for that to happen. I have very good relationships with editors. By the 2000s, around this time that we're talking about, you're coloring a lot of covers, you're working a lot. If you were to color like a cover in interiors for an issue, how much time would that take you around this period? Depending on the complexity of, of the covers and the art inside, I would say that in the 2000s, it would take me, typically, it would take me a couple hours. Interior page would take me also an hour and a half, roughly, uh, okay. the average page. Yeah, yeah, that, that's good. I didn't have assistance back then. Right. Oh, I see. So you have some assistance now then that kind of help out? Ah, flatters, yeah. Oh, flatters. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. Because I've done some I've done some graphic novels of my own, and I noticed that um, for an artist, sometimes they'll have like a flat colorist kind of do it first and then they'll do other things after that. So the colors. <laughs> when you work for Marvel and DC, you know, what determines your color tone? Is that basically like you're looking at the the art and then that determines it? Are, are you looking at it? Does does editorial in some way guide you as far as color tone of a cover? Some editors are very hands-on, some are very hands-off. For both covers and interiors, I get guidance or not from a combination of the editor, uh, first and foremost, since they are the boss, the artist, sometimes the writer, like Garth Ennis, for example, is very hands-on with the colors he wants. Sometimes I have certain ideas when it comes to coloring, particularly covers. So I try to do something that goes with the art and that is striking. And more times than not, I get very few or 
no notes. Sometimes the artist has very specific ideas of what they want, and that's my least favorite way of working. Yeah. So when the artist says, "Okay, I want this to be this way," or they say, "Okay," you know, and it's 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 not as creative. It sounds like anybody can do it. Because you did a lot of covers, you know, Doctor Octopus, Spider Man, Batman, Superman, X Men, Silver Surfer. You know, when you see that, it's a particular character. Then does that then also help, or rather, guide you or inform your decision on how to color that? Like Silver Surfer is in space, so you you know you have a, maybe a certain color palette in mind. Spider Man in the city, Batman at night. You know, are these all things that kind of inform that? It depends on the illustration. The illustration tells you what color it should be. I mean, I see an illustration and I picture it in color in my mind, and then I just go and put those colors in, you know? So sure, outer space has those psychedelic colors. And- oh, I see. But it's not necessarily the character. It's it's the picture. It's the picture. About 10 years ago, I look at this database online somewhere, which counted how many pages and covers I had done. And this is about 10 years ago. Yeah. And it said I had done 14,000. Yeah, right. And then I looked and there were a lot of projects that were missing. So I can't even imagine how many I've done, but it's been a lot. So, you know, like everything else, you do it so much that eventually you sort of have a muscle for it. So much you do unconsciously. And that's why I like teaching because I have to explain what I'm doing. Otherwise I just do it. The line art dictates the palette and the style of the coloring. What you do as a good colorist is to finish the art without overpowering it. I have a preference for flatter colors more than render colors. I have a preference for complementary colors, particularly to do overly colorful pieces unless it's a psychedelic project. For example, I just finished this project that hasn't been announced yet. And the artist was wonderful. And the writer, who's also an artist, asked me to do a look based on the Giallo films of the 60s, like and I did a few pages and they were like, oh, like this one, like this one it was super bright color. And I was like, sure. So basically I did all 85 pages. I think it was uh, with like uh, really shocking colors and uh, they loved it. And uh, and we will work more in other projects after that. Uh, I would not have had the nerve to color it so brightly if I hadn't been encouraged. But once I'm like, go with it, then sure. On the other hand, I did another project for a very high profile character. I got the probably the worst advice that I can get when doing a project, especially with someone I never worked with before and an artist I never worked with before. How would you like this color? Right. And they say, oh, do whatever you want. When I hear that, I know I'm going to have to redo it. Oh, interesting. Because you do what you want, and then they want something different. Exactly. What I do when I do that is I do a decent version mm-hmm. that doesn't take any chances of the material. They could go to print, and it would sell just as well. And then I wait for them to tell me what, which is completely different always. It's like 100% different. Like In this case, they wanted all monochromatic schemes in most pages. And I was like, okay. That's not something I'm going to do naturally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so specific now. Yeah. I work fast. I work efficiently. I like the work. And uh, and I'm totally open to changes. So it's like I take notes and notes and notes. Right. And it's a lot of fun. And it allows me to work with many different people, many different styles, many different subjects. You colored uh, Paul Pope's Batman Year 100, and that won an Eisner. And that brings up a question for me as far as Inking and coloring. Does sometimes inking happen during a coloring process where you're kind of doing both? No. 
Okay, so they're clearly distinct. And so you'll have inks prepared before you color it. Yes. The feeling of recognition when that Eisner came through, you know, was it? I can't tell you much. I wasn't there. I don't think I was mentioned in the ceremony. But the colors are clearly a part of it. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. So now I'm just going to kind of name a few things around the same time, which I find interesting because each one's so different from the other. But I think as a colorist, that's the cool thing is the variety that you're a part of. Jeff Lemire's Sweet Tooth 2009-2013, 2010 Inverna Lopez's Cuba My Revolution. When I looked through it, it was like black and white and red. Right. 2013, you did some of uh, Django Unchained, uh, which had a comic which was part of the Quentin Tarantino kind of thing. So, you know, it's just a lot of variety and a lot of interesting choices that you probably were making through all this. Does genre play a role in coloring? Yes. Yes. Paul always works in black and white. So when he came up with uh, Batman Year 100, it was going to be his first mainstream project. I remember he picked me because he liked my colors in the photography that he had seen, like the mirror of love. And he definitely didn't want standard coloring. And I remember we met in Washington Union Station and he had a few issues of Metal Ouglant. And we went over some of the things that were happening in Metal Ouglant. Paul is very good to work with because he always tells me what he wants, but he doesn't tell me the colors to use. Like he would say to me, make this cover look like Murnau's Nosferatu if he had filmed it in color. Oh, I see. And I know exactly what he means. Uh, so he wants the feeling and he lets me choose the colors. And so he likes that uh, that he can tell. We did an Elvis that he wanted color with El Greco palette. And it's like, oh, I can totally do that. And like, he, nice, he likes that he can say things to me that I know what he's talking about. Jeff, likewise. Uh, always works in black and white. I knew him from the Top Shelf family. And uh, his first mainstream book was Sweet Tooth. And uh, so he wanted to work with me because he knew me personally and he liked me personally and we're friends. Uh, both of those projects were with Bob Shrek, who was extremely open-minded about art approaches. Cuba, my revolution was Karen approved that project. Joan Hilty, my friend, was the editor. Dean, who's also a friend, wrote, I mean, uh, he adapted and illustrated the story. They decided to make it in two colors. Dean had in mind to make it brown and yellow. I didn't want to color it in brown and yellow. I wanted to color it in black and red because communist Cuba. So we did some tests and so forth, and finally, Dean agreed and won my one Harvey from that, which is funny that I got my Harvey for coloring for using one color. Yeah, that's funny. And then the one you mentioned after that, which one was? Django Unchained colored Dennis Cowan's art in that. Dennis Cowan. That's right. And uh, for that, I actually had a copy of the movie on my computer and I actually freeze framed the scenes to like get a very accurate palette for each one of the scenes. But then I had to heighten them because movie colors are not comic book colors. So that was great. And he was nominated for an Eisner as well. The reference toward genre and coloring is he also did the 2016 Conan role-playing game, Sword and Sorcery, right? If someone were to mention, hey, look, you know, I want the color palette to be like a sword and sorcery type, does that automatically have its own colors that yet that you have in mind? Oh, yes. And the first job I got for Conan on the Dark Horse was uh, I was supposed to take over when Dave Stewart left Richard Eisenhoff did some issues, and then I was supposed to take over. But then Kerry North left, Timothy Truman 
uh, Tomas Yorello began, and somebody else was coloring him. And then they did discover that Tomas wasn't happy and he wanted to color like Frazetta. I color it exactly like a Frazetta and he was happy. And so I started working with him. And then I was supposed to work with Corbin on that. And eventually I did. And then I stayed with the series. We did many, the series was a collection of mini series really, but it was about six years that Tomas and I and Timothy worked together. And it was very fun. And definitely there was a type palette that is appropriate for uh, swords and sorcery that is um, a lot grittier than a superhero comic or like a contemporary story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the genre is the, and then in movies, then you add sound to color and composition and and now you have a genre right there. So um, that's pretty cool. And that's cool that, you know, if someone, you know, hires you to color something, they say, okay, here's the genre. You already have like a kind of a, a, a whole backlog of experience of what color, kind of colors you might end up using. But then, of course, it sounds like the picture that you're receiving then defines the ultimate color choices, also based on some discussions you have with the people that are that are uh, that are part of that. So that's right. So that's cool, and it's like a and it gets more specific. You know, the closer you get toward the actual picture, and then the final execution. That's great, and that that's wonderful that you're talking that through with me because it helps me also understand the arts in general better. So in 2017, you colored the first five issues of America, Marvel's first Latinx, you know, LGBT hero, you know, tell us about that experience. And were you selected for that? Did you want to do that? How'd that work? Joe Quinones asked for me and I met him socially. I really love his work. This was under Axel Alonso and Axel always liked working with me. And I always liked working with Axel. Axel was a wonderful editor. He's the one who really got me to work with Corbin. So I will forever be in his debt. Axel was one of those editors who's really sensitive to art. When America came about, it was very exciting to do it because working with Joe, and I realized that the entire team was Hispanics. Gabby Rivera was writing the story. So it was like everybody, uh, story, anchor, penciler, everything, and colorist, you know, Latinx, lesbian hero, which was exciting. It was very edgy at the time to have this queer immigrant from another planet, but Latina nevertheless. character be called America was very in your face. And it was a lot of fun. Joe wanted me to color it exactly how I had worked with Adam Hughes and Betty and Veronica. And Adam had a very, very, very specific idea for Betty and Veronica that had to do with flat colors, soft gradients, colored cheeks, and colorized outlines in everything. It was very laborious. It was very beautiful because it's Adam. Joe's style is different. So, you know, I sort of adapted to that. And then he had filling artists that I tried to do the best I could to make it all match. So we did the first trade. I'm very proud of that work. It got a lot of nominations for different awards, especially for visibility and for representation. And it read great. Gary Rivera was a wonderful writer, and I hope she's doing a lot more comics because she was really, really terrific. That was a, a real joy. So now let's talk about Richard Corbin's Den and uh, your function as uh, the project art director on this for Dark Horse. We talked about it a bit earlier, but he died three years ago at 80 years old, roughly. First, do you remember like what year you first met him, started talking about art with him? Do you remember what year roughly that was? When when did Cage come out? Oh, and that was through Axel Alonso. Yeah, 2002, 20 years ago. Tell us about that. And what was your initial impression of him about how you guys communicated artistically about things. I really was 
very pushy to Axel since he was in vertigo and he yeah. hired Corbin to do Hellblazer. I was very pushy when he moved to Marvel. He was going to do Hulk. He didn't give it to me. He gave it to this team of Mexican colorists. After he finished that, he did Cage and then Cage he offered to me and he gave the colorists uh, the regular series of the Hulk. John Romita Jr. was doing with Bruce Jones. I remember getting the original pages at home. They were beautiful. I scanned them. I talked to him on the phone. I had an idea of how to do it and I did it. And he was rendering them kind of in a pointed list way, which I'd never seen him do before with teeny, teeny dots. I sort of tried to mimic that in the coloring, put a lot of work in those pages. After the first issue came out, Axel loved it. But Corbin said that he wanted me to simplify the coloring. I said, I'd do anything you want. Just tell me what to do. He actually did a sample for me. And I followed that after that. And it was colors in him. I had never seen him use himself until then. He had always rendered everything like super three-dimensionally. Starting then, he just wanted flat colors and gradients, which was a look I never would have thought for him. So basically, I did a hybrid of what I was doing and what he asked me to do because of continuity and because Axel really liked what I was doing. So he sent me a postcard with an Andrew Wyeth painting, very, very kind. And more importantly, one day I received this very large cardboard box. I opened it and inside the box were five beautiful drawings of nudes from life, from observation that he was, he sent to me. And so I was flabbergasted. I remember I was like, I almost fell on my butt. I called him. I said, uh, Richard, I just received this package with five drawings. And he said, well, they're for you. And I said, well, that's incredibly generous. And he said, well, you told me you like my work. So I thought you would like to have them. They're framed in my living room, by the way. And they've been hanging there for 20 years. And I said, well, yes, I, I, I love them. What are they? He says, I like to work from live. I go to live drawing sessions every week. And I said, well, that's very interesting, Richard, because among the many other things that you do so well, one of the things that you're, those of us who love your work are very impressed by your deep knowledge of anatomy and how you can place the muscles and the figures and distort them and do realism and do exaggeration when you want to. It's like, that's one of your absolute strengths that sets you apart. And he said to me, well, that's very nice of you to say, but you know, when it comes to drawing the figure, you can never be too good. And I was like, holy cow. I do like a little shitty drawing. I was like, look how awesome I am. And it's like Corbin saying that it was such a lesson for me because he was so humble. He was not humble bragging either. He's just, that's who he was. And he did that all the way to the end. He would just go and sit there with students and draw people from life. Amazing. Such a master. Yeah, that's how we first got our start. And then over the years, I colored several things by him. He liked when I color him and he liked when Dave Stewart colored him in Hellboy. He liked both of us because I remember he wrote to one of my editors and my editor told me. So I colored him in other series. And uh, eventually, like 10 years after I worked in Cage, I did the creepy presents that I was talking about before. Even in martial arts, like the highest level, there's always that feeling, well, it tends to be accompanied with a feeling of humility and you can never be too good and constant practice, constant work to constantly try to get 
to that point, but you never get there, but you get closer. It sounds like he had that approach. He was almost like a 10th degree black belt that was still, you know, constantly seeking self-improvement, which, which is amazing, right? Because you feel like they don't need that. But, amazing. Amazing. But it is amazing. Yeah. So then, you know, just to give um, the audience a little backstory, it's not exactly sword and sorcery. It's like a sword and otherworldly fantasy series. The, I watched the animated 1968 film he did. People can watch that on YouTube, but it's about a normal guy who enters another world as a virile strong man. And there's a big breasted woman in human monsters. And it's, it actually has like this kind of convoluted publishing history because it was in underground comics. Metal Herlant, Heavy Metal, Penthouse Comics. It had some reprints here and there. He did some stuff with his own Fantagore Press on that. So were you following that stuff in real time as it was happening? Yes. I bought the first appearance in the underground. I bought that when I was in my 20s. I mean, I was in my teens when that came out. And the movie was impossible to see. He reprinted what was in the underground comic in Metal Hulant. I bought some of those already. And then, of course, in Heavy Metal, he reprinted the whole thing. And then the whole thing was collected. So, yes, I was following it from the beginning, except I didn't get the grim wit in 1972 because I was a 10-year-old boy living in Madrid. <laughs> right. So tell us about this whole process and your role as the project art director on this Dark Horse uh, Den reprint. How has this process been, the remastering and coloring process? It's been very interesting. His two favorite comics that he ever did were Bloodstar and then Bloodstar. I also got to restore uh, what is in black and white. He was done work for hire, so he didn't own the rights to that. But it was reprinted in France and it would be reprinted here as well. Then, as opposed to Bloodstar, was a multi-volume series he did it for several decades in a way it's more personal work the then character he projected a lot of his personality in the character and so it's a very unusual hero he's not stereotypical he's not macho or randomly violent he doesn't have the qualities of a lot of other barbarian type characters. It's loosely inspired by John Carter of Mars, but it doesn't have any of that militaristic origin that John Carter has. It's a lot more chaotic in narrative structure, psychedelic in many ways, because the plot moves with feelings in a way. It's very sporadic. And uh, the first volume in particular, it was done over a span of years. The art style changed. And he wrapped it up at the end. The second volume, it's very structured as a single narrative, mm. as are the rest of the stories. I was very excited to do it, uh, obviously, for many reasons, personal and artistic, uh, but also because it's his masterpiece. And I want it to be like a beautiful edition, much better than any that appeared all those years ago. And so I knew that he had kept the art. As I said before, Donna and Beth scanned all the pages. Uh, so I had all the original, not just line art, but grayscale work to work from. I have many different editions of it. So I scanned different editions of it to find the optimum color. And then I made color corrections. And then they gave me some color corrections as well. Mm -hmm. I work with the letterer to replicate his very unusually shaped word balloons, but with better lettering. I work with the designer 
I put together all the additional materials. I wrote longish essay to contextualize how the character fits within American culture in terms of like bodybuilding and so forth. You know, and the one who scans all the pages and sends to Dark Horse so they can litter it. I don't know the production work for it, all the right, background right. production work in addition to the coloring, in addition to the supervising the whole thing. Right, yeah, because it doesn't just say colorist. It says project art director. You're basically producing this thing. I am. Dark Horse has very talented production people, but there's also like taste, like what was going to be the frontispiece, you know, mm. what size was the font was going to be, blah, blah, blah. How was going to, the introduction that I wrote, how it's going to be laid out. I did a little bit of editing and Patton Oswald's uh, introduction as well. The editor has been very gracious, very respectful. So Donna and I, I have been extremely hands-on with this project to get it right. Yeah, Dark Horse sent it to me to look at in preparation for our interview. And I was really amazed by it really visually pops. It wastes no time. And you're looking at great things right off the bat. I love the way you put it together. And the essays are just well done, beautiful. And the whole thing is a real high-class production. I, I'm really impressed with it. Thank you so much. I think that it's given me a chance to really analyze it, even though I've been reading it all my life. I never read it with so much attention because every little space had to be considered. The first 16 pages, which are taken from the underground, have a much simpler drawing style. But in the 16 pages, there is so much experimental narrative in terms of like the panel structuring and the page layouts, like dizzying 180 degree panoramas, amazingly creative stuff done so simply. Yeah. After that chapter, the art just explodes. It's just like the next chapter, which was the first one in Metallogland, when he's using photo collages. I never seen such vivid, realistic art in such dynamic context. I never saw it then and I never seen it again. Nobody has done it like the second chapter of then. And then he painted a whole chapter and it's all like this beautiful jewel-like paintings that were not color in printing, they were color on the page. And then he then again changed again and started doing a uh, gray tone with manipulated color plates. I feel like it's a source of inspiration. It's delightful to read superficially, but it's extremely instructive to analyze. Sorry that it hasn't been because it's been out of print for so long. And because it has so much nudity, it's been dismissed. Bloodstar was the first hardcover in America that used the word graphic novel in its own description. Because it was genre work, it's been kind of dismissed. Likewise, then, has been dismissed because it's not only genre work, but it's genre work that has very voluptuous and exaggerated nudity. Yeah. Like the whole idea of doing longer narratives to put in yourself became dominated with autobiographical comics or another genre, which is that kind of like Yiddish theater kind of versions that Eisner did in a contract with God, that kind of moral stories and so on and so forth, urban plight. And the underground artists already, some of them were very resentful of Richard Corbin because he was so successful when he worked in the underground and because his work was so visually enjoyable. And I think that alternative comics have inherited some of that, dismissing it as less because it's uh, fantastical in nature. So I hope that changes, and I hope that he's actually studied more seriously. The many virtues in the work are discovered for the first time. 
by many people. Yeah, I think that's very possible based on the beauty of the production. You know, you mentioned the the body types and the bodies in it. How much of that is an American sense of sex somehow being some sort of taboo um, versus a European sense where it isn't? And how much of that is also like a, a sex negative versus sex positive viewpoint on things? Do those things collide into that dismissal? Yeah. In the 80s, when he did his continuation, he had underwear on everybody. Yeah, right. Because the distributors wouldn't carry it. Whereas in Europe, nobody bat an eye about the nudity. Everybody enjoyed it. So, you know, I think that uh, I was talking about this the other day in an interview, but I, to me, then comes not just from bodybuilding, like I wrote in the essay, uh, and Jane Mansfield and this obsession with like voluptuous stars and muscular men and all that stuff. But um, that was joined with like the fact that when you read John Carter in your mind, everybody's naked because that's why it's described, even though the illustrations have like little mm. outfits. And then nudity was really big in the 60s. Like in the late 60s and early 70s, I remember when I first came to America um, in 74, and it was like skinny dipping and like, oh, which yeah. I never heard of that concept in Spain. And, but we had streakers that would just take all the clothes and run around in the street. And there was like, and nudism was a big thing. Um, and that sort of, there was this burst, burst of like, um enjoy your body and enjoy other oh, yeah. people's bodies and like this freeing sensation the feminism burn your bra all that stuff was like in the air in those years right and then the backlash the anti-feminist backlash the uh, homophobia the um you know the reagan years the conservatism like and also, I think I think just that just AIDS also just culturally made a lot of these backlashes uh, more feasible, probably because then people got afraid. Like, well, what did? And it, it puts it ca ended up casting a blame, which I think is unfair. But probably culturally, AIDS had a big. Uh, oh, the AIDS definitely had an. It mixed into that. A lot of people were happy that AIDS was happening because it was getting rid of all the perverts in their eyes. Right. And it wasn't just that they were gays, that they were gay that actually dares do something about it and not be victims all their lives. Right. And so there was definitely an anti-sexual, moralistic thing going on. Don't forget the anti-feminism. With Nancy Reagan, like women stepped back, you know, the Equal Rights Amendment never got passed, which was like a done deal in the 70s. It's like all of a sudden it's like the higher echelons were like telling women know your place and, you know stand by your man Tommy Wynette and like um so in that way women were only seen as uh good meaning chaste and supportive of their husband or bad meaning naked and promiscuous right no gray zone in between and no way to integrate that the whole Madonna whore syndrome which has been you know studied nauseum yeah so that dichotomy um doesn't exist in corbin's work it's completely like far from that you know the women are um 
very voluptuously drawn, but they are uh, oftentimes not passive. They're very aggressive. Uh, yeah. Is he surrounded by these women that uh, really have huge impact on the stories? And um, yes, some of them get rescued sometimes, but you know, just remember in the first chapter, the woman that looks like is going to be the victim is the one that actually gets the monster eaten, and she eats him. She eats the monster. <laughs> yeah. So that really defines Corbin in so many ways. The hero is simple. He thinks he, the women needs rescuing, and then at the end, uh, it turns out to be very different than what meets the eye. Mutant world begins the same way. Right. Yeah, it's interesting, because I think Corbin was like a Midwest guy, Midwest American guy, but he had such um, a different way of looking at things compared to just the standard Midwest American man. And he had such a, almost like a, almost like a European sense about him um but it was uh, he loved the uh, you know the edgar rice burroughs stuff of course but um just interesting that he he carried that with him artistically even as uh, as like from a young age I, I just find that such a unique and interesting thing yes if if you see the uh, first barusha did a wonderful book on him um called flights into fantasy and that book has enormous in amounts of information. And one of the things is uh, a comic that he did as a teenager, or, or I think he may have been a tween, like a young teenager. And it's all done, like it wasn't ever published, and it's all these little drawings. And it's like these two naked muscle guys in a horse in the desert, and one is the friend, and he faints, and his friend takes him there, and then he gets to a castle, and there's a monster. And it's like that world's already formed there. Long before the animation of then, long before his comics, he already had, and he did he did a uh, a comic about his dog, and that's where Ralph comes from. Yeah. So all the ingredients were there from early on, and then he just masterfully developed them over the years. And um, it's such a unique uh, vision, and. It's so delightful in so many ways um, that I think I'm very curious to see how it's going to be received. I know that these books are going to be treasure in Europe. And I think there's a certain kind of reader in America that really would like them too. I just don't know uh, yet. You know, we're going to see what happens. Uh, but yeah, sure. um, it's interesting they put out Murky World first because Murky World is like his penultimate work. It's done in a much more distorted style, but it has a lot of the same obsessions that you see in then. And then it's like a flashback in time. And he left whole graphic novel finished that just needs a little bit of tweaking in the coloring of the last few pages that I'm going to be working with with Beth. It's called Dimwood. And that's one of his kind of like H.P. Lovecraft inspired, yeah. but with the very very like rat god is like that and that's going to be published well i'm very excited to see a posthumous work by him in print because he never cheated he drew the heck out of each page yeah right absolutely and he was disciplined in a way that i never known anyone because up until his untimely uh, passing he would just sit down and draw a page a day like amazing 
I'm very grateful to Donna and to Beth for allowing me to get involved and to Dark Horse for giving me the possibility to do this because, you know, that shows a flexibility on their part that is uncommon in larger companies and eager to do justice, not just to the readers, but to the legacy of Corbin. That's something that the editor and the assistant editor and the whole team, the letterer, Nate, were all super conscious about it. And I've been pushing everyone real hard. (laughs) When does this then come out? August. This has been a a wonderful episode of the Comic Book Historians podcast. Jose, thanks so much for uh, being here with us, sharing with us about your life and your experiences and the comics and and the arts in general. It sounds like Richard Corbin in some way was uh, a mentor to you. So it's great that you can uh, take part in almost this uh, revival or this revitalization of an appreciation for him culturally. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that take off. So thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Anytime. 